Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. You're going to hear something happening today that's not supposed to happen. A reporter shows up to cover a news event that's playing out on public property, but the cops won't let him get anywhere near the action. They claim they're just doing their jobs, keeping everybody safe, but the fact is, it's their own conduct that they're preventing the press from witnessing. In fact, the police are probably breaking the law themselves by obstructing the media. That is what happened last week at Ferry Creek, British Columbia. It's at the southern end of Vancouver Island, where a standoff has been playing out between the RCMP and a group of protesters, or if you prefer, land defenders, who are attempting to protect a rare forest of old growth trees from the logging industry. What we have seen this week are loggers who have been let into the exclusion zone, where there are no legal observers, where there are no media, and where they have been falling trees. There were four police officers watching us until reinforcements arrived. We got word that there were 18 trucks and cruisers and somewhere around 15 paddy wagons on their way in. Over the past week, more than 100 people have been arrested at Ferry Creek. There have been marches, 
people tying themselves to trees and to barricades, reports of a group of senior citizens trying to barricade themselves around the police. This is dramatic stuff. Mass arrests, confrontations with the cops, protesters literally living way up in the sky in these incredible towering 2,000-year-old trees and, and refusing to budge. Wherever you stand on the issues at play here, this is undeniably a news story. But you probably have not seen footage of the action. The cops have largely succeeded in blocking that. Well, that's nothing new. Last September, journalist Carl Dockstadter, co-host of One Dish, One Mike and regular Canada Land contributor, was arrested and charged with mischief and failure to comply with a court order for covering the ongoing protests at a housing development near Caledonia, Ontario, called 1492 Landback Lane. The police were able to temporarily stop him from reporting on what was going on there, and then a few months later, the charges were withdrawn. The winter before that, the RCMP threatened to arrest reporters who were trying to cover the raids at Wet'suwet'en. They detained a reporter, Jerome Turner from Ricochet, for eight hours, keeping him away from the arrests that he was trying to cover. And the summer before that, all charges were withdrawn against Justin Brake. Justin currently works for The Breach, but in 2016, he worked for the Newfoundland Independent. And it was when he was a reporter with them that he was criminally charged with disobeying an order of the court when he was covering the occupation of the Muskrat Falls Energy Project in Labrador. In all four of these instances, you will note some very similar dynamics. Protesters opposed to various forms of resource extraction and industrial development, environmental issues coming to a head with industry, and complicated internal politics of indigenous nations where elected band councils often strike deals with industry that are opposed by hereditary chiefs in the same communities and by community members, thrusting some very painful historical dynamics that are not terribly well understood under a national microscope. But there is something else that is similar in all of those stories, and that's what we're going to focus on today. None of the reporters that I mentioned the ones who have been intimidated, detained, arrested, and charged. None of them are from mainstream news organizations. There's a familiar sad song about how strained and under-resourced legacy newsrooms are. Fewer reporters than ever to cover stuff. We've heard all of that. And we've also heard the narrative of deep concern about fake news and partisan news and citizen journalists and news bubbles. This fear that maybe we can't really trust this new breed of journalists who actually are showing up to cover the stories. Well, what I see happening is that a lot of the footage, the eyewitness documentation that lets the rest of us actually see what is happening in conflict spots, a lot of that footage is increasingly coming from people who are not mainstream reporters. And when these not mainstream reporters show up to get that footage, the cops seem to be pushing it in a way that they never used to, leaning on these people in a way that they didn't when reporters would show up in a minivan with a CBC logo on it or in a CTV satellite news truck. What I see is that indie news organizations, individual documentarians, and sometimes, yes, partisan actors documenting their own actions, they are the tip of the spear when it comes to the public's right to know what is happening. And when the authorities do come down on them, well, it's not clear that mainstream news organizations in Canada have any interest in supporting them. Instead, what readers of the local Victoria newspaper, the Times Colonist, saw last Thursday was a front-page photo of a masked RCMP officer in a black balaclava and a flak jacket 
offering his finger to a cute little baby for a squeeze. The headline read, A Friendly Greeting Amid Tensions at a Logging Protest. This shit is beyond self-parody. Today we're going to hear a lot more about what has been happening at Ferry Creek and about how a group of independent news organizations are not waiting for institutional support. They are pushing back against the increasingly media-hostile police. A reporter, Sharice Sucharan, joins me now. Sharice, you've been digging into this all week. Tell me the questions that you've been trying to answer. So I wanted to know how this has been playing out. Reporters have been driving out to cover Ferry Creek with no idea whether or not they'll be allowed access. It's a gamble, and they find themselves negotiating with whatever RCMP officer happens to be at the blockade and subject to that specific officer's understanding of the law, of their orders, and even of journalism. So I'll be talking to reporters who found themselves in these negotiations, and you'll even hear some tape of how that played out. I also wanted to know, when the police use injunctions to block reporters from doing their jobs, is that even legal? And if not, why do they keep doing it? I wanted to dig into recent history a bit. And I talked to a journalist who was at the center of a previous legal case. And finally, I wanted to know what the Canadian media establishment plans to do about this, if anything. So you're going to hear me talk to Brent Jolly, president of the Canadian Association of Journalists. Okay. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Eric Dorval, George Chandler, Dugal Topshi, Philip Bainan, Elle Flanders, Nikolai Rigaud, Kamal Ali, and Jonathan Canary. This is Jonathan Canary, audiovisual professional from beautiful Cape Breton Island. I listen to Canada Land for its ruthless media and cultural critiques. And I got to say, Jesse Brown has become my favorite podcasting smartass. Jimmy Thompson is an editor of Capital Daily, an independent digital news outlet out of Victoria, B.C., and he's also on the board of the Canadian Association of Journalists. He's been following the protests and injunctions at Ferry Creek and decided to go down to the Kekus camp, which is one of a few different blockades happening there, last week. In the middle of the forest, he found himself at a police roadblock. The southern tip of Vancouver Island is, once you get out of Victoria, out of Langford, sort of the the capital regional district, you get out into this rainforest. And it's mostly yellow cedar, red cedar, Douglas fir, hemlocks. So these big trees that, when you're in an old growth forest on the south coast here, it just looks primeval. You know, mossy rocks and lichen hanging from the trees and misty forest. It's incredibly beautiful. Ferns everywhere. And some of these trees can be 2,000 years old. So I can see why people develop a really strong emotional attachment to it. And so Fairy Creek itself is an untouched watershed. There's not been logging in this one valley. If you look at Google Maps of South Vancouver Island, you can actually see this like leaf-shaped valley. And it's the only one around that's untouched. Really, things got going last Monday, and that was when the RCMP said that they were going to start enforcing this injunction. So I got in my car and I drove out to uh, just west of Lake Cowichan, about an hour on this logging road, and you're driving through this sort of dark, dense forest and on, on this muddy logging road, higher and higher up through the hills, and then suddenly there's an RCMP checkpoint. So I got out of my car, and I started recording on my phone. I, you know, I greeted the, the RCMP officers and just said, hey, you know, I'm hoping to get through to the KQ's blockade. 
Hi. Good, thanks. How are you doing? Um, I'm with Capital Daily. Okay, uh, in media? Victoria, media. Yeah. Okay. And I'm hoping to get through to the blockade. Oh, okay, nobody's going through today. Okay. Um, you have to contact Corporal Manso with the RCMP Media Relations. Okay. And he's the contact. Okay, I've spoken with Corporal Manzo, not, not today. Um, yeah. You guys have, like... Obviously, there's no cell service out here. Is there any yeah. way to get in touch with them from here? Not from here, so nobody's going through today. But the, but you have to you get in contact with him. Okay. Um, so you're not even letting media in? No. This point. no. What, why is that? It's part of the injunction and part of the, the I didn't see that in the injunction. It's part of the operations right now. For, it'll be in place tomorrow. Can you explain that a little bit more? You need to contact Corporal uh, So, But I can't contact him from here. So is there, is there like... Well, you can drive back to cell service and give him a phone call. Yeah, that's an hour him. and a half that way. And then uh -huh. an hour and a half back here. I just... Is there any way, like, that I can contact you from here? Obviously, you guys are in, in mm -hmm. touch with him. Otherwise... No, we've been, told, we've been told to advise people that he's available by phone and, he, and tomorrow. Okay, so he doesn't have any way to contact you guys? No. So how would you know if he had told me that because I can go ahead? that's the direction that I've been given. <laughs> Like, well, I can check with the command post, but that's the direction I've been given is nobody coming through. I would really appreciate if you could check with them, because, I mean, that, that's, it, it, that doesn't seem reasonable to not be letting media do, in. Do you have that. also a piece of ID so we can verify? Do you have your accreditation? Or I have a business card. No, well, no, media no, accreditation. That media is not a real thing. Sorry? There's no, like... A media accreditation body in Canada. Like this, I'm I'm on the board of the Canadian Association of Journalists. Okay. There's no such thing as like a card that says I'm the media. So. So you want you want us, our command to tell you verbally they can't come in. Yes, please. Jimmy's right. There's no media accreditation body in Canada that determines who is or who is not a journalist, and there are definitely no identification cards that say as much. It's not clear why the officers didn't know this or what media credentials they had in mind. But that was it. And after driving for so long, Jimmy gets turned back with no way to argue his case. They refused to acknowledge that they were violating court precedent and policy and uh, turned me away. And, you know, my, my, my options essentially were to get arrested out in the middle of nowhere with no one else around uh, on principle uh, or, or to go home. And, you know, I almost kind of regret not just getting arrested for the sake of it because they were definitely not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Speaking with those officers on the ground was really frustrating because they clearly didn't have really any idea of what media do, what the rights of media are, or any interest in it. They just, they saw me as just being another protester, just another person to be kept out. They didn't understand that there's precedent here. They didn't understand that media are, according to the courts in Canada, to be treated differently than participants in a protest or something that's got an injunction against it. Um, we're not participants, we're there as observers. These police did not, either did not understand that or weren't interested in it or deliberately were going against it. The fact that they thought that there was a media accreditation body in Canada too was weird. How often have they had to deal with media in their careers? And every time do they think that the media are supposed to present them with a card that says, I do journalism on it? Because that's not what we have here. So Jimmy tried sending another reporter from Capital Daily, who did end up getting through. But as he describes, she was escorted into the area by RCMP and crawled into one section. I wasn't there on the Tuesday, but Emily Vance was given two options of where to stand. And she had to kind of stick to one of those or the other. Um, so she could stay 50 feet away in one spot or 150 feet away in a different spot. And it was kind of like a, a corralled situation. 
Like that's not really close enough to, to hear a conversation, to see exactly what happens. You know, if there's several cops around one person that's being arrested, you can't necessarily see all the things. I mean, picture any video you've seen of an arrest taking place that where something went wrong. That video wasn't usually taken from 100 feet away or 50 feet away. It was usually taken from right there. And that's where you can actually see what's happening. The media aren't just there to film arrests that go wrong, but they're there to convey what's happening on the ground to people that might be in Ottawa or in Halifax, right? Like it's of public interest. And so the, the RCMP use this safety excuse to prevent media from getting closer. But in most arrest situations, the people were just sort of allowing themselves to be carried off. They're not fighting back. They don't have weapons. This isn't a violent situation. Jimmy's definitely not the only reporter facing these challenges. Ethan Cox, editor at Ricochet, has been sending journalists to Ferry Creek over the past week and has noticed that while there have been reports of what's happening behind the police roadblocks, such as marches, arrests, different types of direct action from the protesters, there just isn't any footage. And it really materially affects the journalism. The access restrictions materially affect the journalism and the amount of time taken away from editors and journalists arguing about this, wasting their time, driving back out to cell phone range, driving back. So whatever the public is looking at, you know, our videos or anybody else's video, there are a lot of holes in the story and we're doing our best to fill them in. Uh, We're working our our tails off um, to speak to witnesses, to find out what we're missing, but we don't have footage. We don't have photographs. And there are pieces of this story that are that are not getting out. We have no footage of the raid that happened because Michael Simpkin was turned back at the checkpoint and held there until the raid was over. I think it's probably fair to say that I speak for almost every editor and media outlet when I say we are tremendously tired of this. After talking to Ethan and Jimmy, I wanted to hear from someone that did fight for it a few years ago, and won. In 2016, Justin Brake was a journalist for Newfoundland's The Independent, and he followed a group of demonstrators as they broke past the barrier and onto the site of the Muskrat Falls Hydro Project. At the time, Brake was the only reporter documenting what was happening inside. Other news reporters were present, but didn't dare follow the demonstrators onto the property. When Nalcor Energy filed an injunction to get the demonstrators off the property, there was no indication that there was a journalist in their midst. Brake was charged with mischief and disobeying a court order. During the court proceedings, it was APTN that was the only Canadian media outlet to intervene, speaking up about the importance of reporting on matters impacting Indigenous communities. In 2019, Justin won his criminal case. That ruling in the Newfoundland and Labrador Court of Appeal highlighted how the injunction was meant to protect property rights but that as a journalist, Brake's presence was functionally different to the demonstrators and was therefore not included in the injunction. It established that journalists in an injunction zone are not in violation if they're reporting on issues of public interest. The court also found that the fact that Brake was reporting on a matter of concern to Indigenous people played a significant role, one that media should play in fulfilling the goals of the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And then the RCMP's Civilian Review and Complaints Commission which is the RCMP's own oversight body, also found that exclusion zones, which appear to be just like the ones being used at Ferry Creek, were not something RCMP had the authority to do. After all that, I asked Justin if he thought his court case has had any impact on the way the RCMP understand the role of the press, 
and if he thinks anything has changed. There is now, in my court case, a decision that sets a standard. And if they are going to arrest journalists and potentially trigger another court case, that could be precedent setting in terms of strengthening journalists' rights and and press freedom rights in Canada. I mean, the RCMP was created to effectively dispossess Indigenous people from their lands, and they're still enforcing Canadian laws over Indigenous laws that prioritize private interests and profits over Indigenous rights and human rights. And so in that context, I mean, they they cannot possibly be seen as an objective or neutral party in all of this. But at the same time, they're, they're up against not only a legal precedent like mine, but a really rapidly shifting public perception of who the RCMP are, what they're about, what role they play, and uh, growing public support for Indigenous land defense. But in terms of watching these injunctions being enforced, it's very clear that their hands are tied in, uh, they, they can no longer do what they used to do, which was enforce these junctions under the darkness of night with oftentimes no media around or no media that could properly contextualize uh, some of these stories. And as journalists, we have to recognize too that given the history of police enforcement of injunctions and the violence against Indigenous people and facilitation of dispossession of Indigenous people, we really sometimes, we can't, we can't miss a moment. Like you have to be there day and night. Raids go down at nighttime. Raids go down when journalists aren't present quite often. So in these situations, journalists just simply need to be there to bear witness and document what's going to happen. We don't know what they're thinking and talking about strategically. But what we do know from the Project Sitka revelations a few years ago and uh, some research that's been done by Jeff Monahan, a criminology prof at Carleton, and Miles Howe, a researcher at Queen's, They found a couple of years ago in 2019, they got access to documents through access to information legislation uh, from the RCMP, CSIS and federal government departments that showed that the RCMP were actively ranking, quote unquote, protesters or land defenders according to their ability to gain public support, according to their ability to use social media to their advantage, to influence public narratives. So we know factually that the RCMP does care about public perception and that they do identify people within groups or movements who might have more or less ability to convey messages to the public. So it only makes sense then that we can conjoin that with the fact that journalists are credible sources of information and can relay that information from areas where police may not want specific messages coming out that would make their job harder. That was Project Sitka Justin was just talking about, an RCMP operation that launched in early 2014, which identified and gathered intelligence on nearly 100 Indigenous activists cited as threats during events and demonstrations. The project was discovered by researchers in 2016. Throughout Justin's ordeal, he received support from independent media outlets, international press organizations like Reporters Without Borders, and Canadian groups like the CAJ. But he didn't hear much from the bigger mainstream media. I asked him why he thought that might be, and why he thought the big media outlets were silent. It's funny because the support at first was limited to the press freedom organizations and a few small independent media outlets like Ricochet, you know, the Canadian Association of Journalists and CJFE, 
they all basically got involved right away and talked to me and said, how can we support you? And uh, RSF as well, Reporters Without Borders and, and a whole bunch, like actually the support press freedom organization wise came from as far away as Pakistan and Ireland as well. So the support was institutional in that respect, but there was very little support from legacy or mainstream media at first. I did have some private DMs come in from journalists who worked at media outlets in Newfoundland and Labrador and elsewhere saying like, I really support you, but I can't say it publicly. I don't want to get in trouble at work. And so I think, I hope that things are changing. I think we should all be supporting them and and asking legacy and mainstream media as well, why aren't you trying to defend press freedom here? Like this can this can come back to to haunt us all if we don't stand up and and defend our rights now and into the future to have access to spaces where we can tell these stories. So if the mainstream outlets aren't willing to stand up for these fights, does it come down to independent organizations? Justin thinks that they will be the ones leading a change in journalism. I think we're at a really important time in journalism right now. You know, um, it's really hard for someone like me to get a job at a large media outlet unless I'm willing to fight tooth and nail for editorial independence and for editorial decisions that would allow me to be unconventional in the way that I tell stories involving something like Indigenous land defense. Journalists who are in it not just to be storytellers, but in it to also create positive change in the world are the ones who you're seeing end up at places like the Discourse or Indigenous or the Breach or the Independent and the Narwhal and, and others like that who are on the ground out there. And they're the ones who are doing the best job. So unfortunately, uh, in order to do their job and continue to improve the quality of journalism in Canada around issues like this, we also now have to be fighting in the courts and against the police. But I think we're going to look back in a few decades and look at this moment in time as being a major transformation in journalism, not just because new outlets popped up and started doing a better job, but because they were also engaging in these like multifaceted fights to, to, to protect our rights. I think it's just a matter of time. I'm angry to see what's happening. Yes, I'm disheartened to see that this is continuing. But at the same time, I think we are on the cusp of a major breakthrough. And I think that it's going to be these press freedom organizations and small independent media outlets who are going to take us across the line into a new era of reporting without fear of police. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. So it sounds like, at least in Justin's view, we really need those independents to step up. And that's exactly what's happening. So after about a week of different media outlets facing this pushback from RCMP, something pretty big happened. The Canadian Association of Journalists took an unusual step. It partnered with the Aboriginal People's Television Network, Canadian Journalists for Free Expression, and a bunch of independent news outlets, including the Narwhal and the Discourse. And they announced that they were taking legal action. As Brent Jolly, president of the CAJ, explains, the legal filing would help to make it clear that journalists are not covered under the injunction and are allowed in the area to report. And it happened because CAJ had been hearing serious reports from journalists about limits to press freedom. I think there's two things here. I think the first step, obviously, is trying to find a way for access, you know, in this particular instance. Because what's really special about this case is that it's still going on, (laughs) for lack of a better description. And that access has been a moving goalpost fairly frequently. You know, we're doing this today. No, we can't do that. No, you can do this. No, that changes. You know, it sort of changes all the time based on whatever the RCMP wants. Um, So we would really like to have the opportunity to clarify um, what's in the injunction that would allow journalists to have access to the area and cover the story in a way that is fair and proper. Because we've seen time and time again that this is this is an issue that keeps coming up. And we'd like to try and find a way so we don't have to keep going back and forth on this all the time. I mean, we've gone through, like you mentioned with Suetin, we've gone through that. There's been the Justin Brake case, you know, there was Carl's issue last fall. You know, every day seems like Groundhog Day. And there's the idea that the RCMP wants to be partners with the media. We're all working together here. And that's great rhetoric. But I don't see that playing itself out on the ground. It just seems like every time we resort to this very defensive position, and it's pretty defeating. But I think that what we've done shows that we're willing to take the next step. You know, that we're not just going to lie down and accept whatever the RCMP does. Journalists have a lot of agency, and if we don't do it, I don't know who else will. And press freedom will be the worst for it. Uh, so that's why we're doing what we're doing. Brent says that the CAJ has gotten the support of a pro bono lawyer to start this legal action. But he points out that without free legal advice, they wouldn't be able to take the stand at all. I asked him how much the CAJ has on hand to do this type of work each year. 
In terms of legal advocacy, it's probably around two thousand dollars. It's it's so it's so tiny. Which when you're dealing with lawyers who are looking at four hundred dollars an hour, like do the math. That's you know about <laughs> five hours. And I don't know what you can really accomplish in five hours at something like this. So I think that just gives you a sense of perspective on what we're able to do. Maybe this is quite frankly, this is something that I think we would like to do more of, but we will need to have the funding to do it. We've been working with a lawyer who has kindly donated his time pro bono, which if it were not for him, and his name is Sean Hearn, he's a lovely man, but we wouldn't be in this position if it weren't for Sean taking that step up to take this case on and to do all the filings and the affidavits and everything. So typically, the CAJ has only gotten involved in court proceedings at the appeal level. And we have a small budget for that, that we usually, you know, various cases that we think are of high prominence. But yeah, this is quite unprecedented. We definitely don't have the budget to do it. And because we're all volunteers here, you know, this is, this is, there's an opportunity cost to everything as well. So we've decided to go in whole hog on, on this issue. And that's an important choice. And I'm glad we did. I also wanted to know if any of the mainstream media organizations like the CBC had gotten involved in this. Oh, for sure. I mean, if CBC is interested in getting involved or any of the other major players, CTV or Torstar or anybody, I would completely welcome that. And I think it would be a great opportunity to stand together and defend media rights. I'll be completely honest, I sent a bunch of emails to various people in the industry to see if they would be interested in joining up on this. Some chose not to, some I didn't hear back from. You know, that's fine. I think that's their decision to make um, if they want to be involved. But I think this is a good cause and there's a good reason to be behind it. So who knows, maybe there's still more to come. For the record, I did reach out to CBC for comment, but I haven't heard anything back yet. By the time you hear this, there might have been some movement on the RCMP side to let journalists have access to the Fairy Creek camps. Or there might have been a court hearing or a ruling to let journalists pass the injunction. The situation is changing rapidly day to day. But what still stands is the fact that for the past two weeks, the media has missed a lot of what has happened, including dozens of arrests. And that means the public has missed it too. And you can't go back in time to rectify that. That is your Canada Land episode. If you like this show, please hire us to make it. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. It just takes a couple of minutes to sign up. Bloop. Then you got it. Email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com, where you'll find a new episode this week of The Backbench. Check out our new politics show. You can also check out the most recent episode of Commons, which taught me all kinds of things I did not know about the city of Vancouver. This episode was reported by Cherise Sucharin and produced by Tristan Capicione, with additional production by Demalola Oname. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support it. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.